a listener production. Welcome to Allergies, where Professors Katie Allen and Mimi Tang from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute break down in detail the diagnosis, management, prevention and cure of allergies, as well as the facts and myths about intolerances and treating other diseases like asthma and eczema. It definitely seems like intolerances have become more common. I mean, almost to the point where it's generated a bit of a stigma around people who claim to suffer. But is there a difference between an intolerance and an allergy? So I think the biggest difference is what's causing the reaction. When we think about food reactions, um, we usually think about reactions that occur reproducibly um, as being adverse reactions to foods. Now, we've already talked about one type of adverse reaction to food, and that's where the immune system has recognised the food as harmful when it should not. And um, the intolerances are basically all those other reproducible adverse reactions to foods where it's not caused by the immune system having recognised the food as harmful. Um, Oftentimes it can be due to substances contained within the food itself and this is typical of say foods containing MSG, um, foods with high levels of salicylates or other histamine releasing compounds and what we mean by that I should be try and simplify that. Um, A lot of foods contain substances that can trigger off the allergy cells called the mast cells that cause release of that cascade of allergy type symptoms, but they're not actually caused by an allergy. Mm -hmm. It's just that the food has these factors in high levels that can activate the allergy cells straight away. And common foods would be citrus fruits, um, strawberries, stone fruits. And a lot of mums will notice that their babies might get redness around the mouth or even a few little hives um, and a rash with some of these foods because of the content of the histamine releasing compounds within the food itself. Another example example of an intolerance would be lactose intolerance and this is where the body is missing an enzyme in the lining of the gut which means it can't break down lactose so any foods that contain lactose will um and the lactose will stay in the gut and pull fluid into the gut because it's not broken down and that causes diarrhea bloating gassy sort of symptoms so there are a range pretty much anything that causes a reproducible food reaction that's not an allergy is an intolerance in my mind. Yeah. Mm. So the issue about intolerances is that there, again, there's a group of in, intolerances that are, as, as Mimi said, by definition, an adverse reaction to a food that doesn't involve an immune response. But there's a group that we clearly know what they are and what causes them. And then there's another group where we don't really know what they are, so we call them intolerances. And this is, again, confusing for the consumer. But lactose intolerance is an example of a condition that is extremely well described, very easy to diagnose, extremely mm. easy to manage, yep. um, and it, you know we know a hell of a lot about it. So lactose intolerance um, is, as Mimi said before, um, inside the lining of the small intestine, there are these little villi that line us. It's a bit like our intestines, a little bit like the pili on, on velvet. If you look at velvet, there's a little pili. And um, what happens is sometimes um, the enzyme is either lost because genetically it's lost over time. And in fact, that ha- occurs more often in Asian and African communities because with time, um, the communities that um, developed around the equator uh, didn't need didn't have milk based 
um, diets. So over thousands and thousands of years, the uh, ability to digest lactose past the early period of infancy um, wasn't necessary. So you, you have lactose in breast milk, so everybody needs lactose when they're breastfed. But um, for those um, communities that have um, developed or cultures that have developed without dairy in their diet, and that's the tropical areas, they're the ones that are most likely to become lactose intolerant as they age. So Asians and Africans, um, it's it's regarded that up to 97% of people by adulthood no longer can consume lactose because the enzyme lactase has disappeared from the tips of the lining of their intestine. So if you go over to America and look for milk, uh, milk that is lactose free is everywhere because there's a very high population of Africans in America. Um, and they take cow's milk and they just add the enzyme lactase into all of the milk and that makes it lactose free. They do the digesting of the lactose milk sugar in the product rather than in our intestine. Now, there are lots of other ways, however, that you can get lactose intolerance. So the first one is kind of a, 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 a... uh, developmental thing that happens in certain people. The other one is an acquired form when someone has a an insult to their intestine and it's a secondary consequence to something. And that can either happen temporarily or permanently. In the temporary one, um, if you have an insult such as a virus from a gastroenteritis, so if you have gastro, you might be intolerant to lactose for a week or two after that because the lining of the intestine has been damaged by the virus or the bacteria so that it looks like a bald patch on the carpet and that those villi have disappeared and the villi tips are where the lactase resides in very in a very rich abundance. So if you have sort of a, a sort of the smooth or the, the intestine gets insulted, uh, then you can't make lactase and therefore you can't digest lactose. So sometimes people have gastroenteritis and they have symptoms of milk intolerance for a few weeks afterwards. And sometimes that goes on for a few months. It's very distressing. Um, And then there are also things like celiac disease, which we said before, causes damage to the intestine. um, And that damage can also cause a secondary consequence of lactose intolerance. So sometimes people with celiac disease are intolerant to lactose But if you fix up their celiac disease and repair their gut by removing the gluten, their lactose intolerance also disappears and they go back to normal. Something we should just point out really quickly as well, because Katie was talking about the lactose-free milk. I think it's really important for the listeners to understand that lactose-free milk is for people with lactose intolerance and it's not um, appropriate as a treatment for cow's milk allergy where you actually have to eliminate all of the cow's milk proteins, not just the sugar, lactose, which is present in cow's milk. Because I find some patients can get confused about that. They think, oh, well, shall I just give my child lactose-free milk? Because that might be a low allergy milk, but Mm. it's not actually addressing the allergy. It's only appropriate for this particular lactose intolerance. So in milk, there's three components. There's the fat, the protein and the sugar. The fat is, you know, high fat or low fat. The protein is the cow's milk protein and the sugar is the lactose. And so if you, interestingly, if you have a cow's milk protein allergy, so the protein causes the damage to the gut, the enteropathy, just like the celiac disease. So celiac disease and cow's milk enteropathy can both get damage the gut mm-hmm. and both of them can get a second reaction, which is a lactose intolerance, which is an intolerance to the sugar. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to ask though before was, you know, we we're talking about temporary um, intolerances to lactose. Are you saying that the the wall, the bold patch ends up growing back? Yes. So it does yes. regenerate? In fact, in three to five days. Wow. 
If, and, if the insult is removed. So once the virus has disappeared or if you take the food out of the diet. So if you take the cow's milk protein out of the diet or the gluten out of the diet, then the intestine has a chance to grow back and the enzyme, uh, lactose, lactase enzyme grows back and then you can digest the milk sugar. So often what we do as allergists is we will remove um, a component of the food even. So with cow's milk, as Mimi said before, there's lots of formulas that are on the market that say they're low in lactose or that they're low in protein or that they've got the protein digested or they've got the sugar digested. It's a little confusing for the community, but if you have a protein intolerance, you might have a secondary lactose intolerance. Uh, so you have to get someone to help you distinguish which one you want to eliminate from your diet. If you continue to consume uh, the lactose whilst you have the damaged wall, would that does that increase the chances of it becoming a permanent intolerance? No, lactose intolerance doesn't actually damage the intestine because what it is is, is it's the enzyme that breaks down the lactose, the milk sugar, and if you don't break it down properly, what it does is it causes fermentation. So it's a bit like a wine vat and that mm. fermentation causes bubbling up and that bubbling up makes your intestine distend and you can have vomiting and diarrhoea because the sugar is just getting all, it's not being digested properly by your body, it's being digested nicely by bacteria mm. and the bacteria start to all ferment and they cause all sorts of bubblingness in there and that's what causes the symptoms of distent, gut distension, diarrhoea and, and occasionally vomiting. It's mostly diarrhoea and abdo distension. So what about gluten intolerance then? Is that similar? I mean, I think it is, yeah. We don't really know much about gluten intolerance other than it's clear a lot of people experience it. People that don't eat a lot of um, wheat products or gluten-containing products, when they do eat them, they sense distension in their bellies and uh, some diarrhoea. I think it is um, exactly what Katie's just been saying. So they eat the wheat and this um, does contain high levels of fermentable um, soluble fibres, they're called. They make it all the way down into the lower intestine where bacteria can break them down. It's actually probably quite good for um, your bacteria to have some food, but if you have... Some people are more sensitive, and we don't know why, whether it's their gut linings are just more sensitive to pressure when the, the bubbling happens that Katie's talking about or fluid comes into the gut. Um, we don't really understand why they seem to be more sensitive to the sensation of eating wheat. Well, that being said, there's a, there is this big um, group of people who have, you know, what they would say is gluten hypersensitivity or fructose malabsorption. Both mm. of those are quite sort of new age kind of sexy terms at the moment. Um, now, there's been surveys, because you, you don't have any diagnostic measures, surveys done that gluten hypersensitivity, particularly in the 30 to 50-year-old female age bracket in the US and probably also in Australia, though we don't have the data here, is as common as celiac disease. So about one in 100 have celiac disease and about one in 100 have gluten hypersensitivity. And it's believed that these people are being assessed with a scope. They don't have celiac disease, but they do feel better when gluten's out of the diet. Mm. So both gluten hypersensitivity and fructose malabsorption is when uh, non-digestible fibres or non-digestible sugars uh, are coming into the intestine and it isn't a damage to the gut lining. What's happening is these non-digested sugars are, not, are fermenting the bacteria that's in the gut. So our intestine is a long tube. It's actually about 22 feet long, so it's really long. It's mm. all wrapped up in there. And uh, the top end doesn't have... Uh, any bacteria. The esophagus has no bacteria. The stomach is very, very high in acid. So there's, there, there are some bacteria that can get through the intestine. Lactobacillus is one, the, the milk sugar bacteria that comes with breast milk. Um, but And it sometimes has something called helicobacter pylori, which is the acid 
the uh, the acid form the ulcer forming bacteria that an Australian Nobel Prize winner discovered. Um, mm-hmm. But then through the rest of the intestine, there's low levels of bacteria until you get down to the colon, and then in the large intestine. Um, about half of the content of the intestine is actually bacteria. And you will have heard this because it's now in the lay community, um, but we have uh, absolutely billions of different microbiome or microbes that are in our gut. And people now quote that you have 10 times more bacteria in your gut than you have cells in your body. Or another one they say is you have 10 times more bacteria in the gut than there are people on this planet. That's the amount. There's actually trillions of bacteria in your gut. And some clever US gastroenterologist said, oh, effectively, we're a bag of bacteria that's carrying around a body. Um, (laughs) But we don't know a lot about that bacteria that's in our gut other than um, if you feed it certain things, you can make it ferment in certain ways. And so, again, it's a bit like a, a wine vat down there. And there's a whole area of research trying to understand what is a healthy microbiome and what's an unhealthy microbiome and what's the best mix of bacteria there and how do you feed it and how do you make it grow well so that you don't get nasty symptoms that make you feel uncomfortable. And Mimi's been working quite a lot in that area. Yes, yes. So we've been looking for a while in our research uh, in my my team um, at the gut microbiota and how that might interact with the immune system and um, how that might then relate to development of chronic illnesses in later life. And something that's really interesting is that the gut microbiota is probably the most important um, component of our early life development that determines our immune health, our metabolic health and our brain health. So the, the sort of all the research over the last 10 years has um, told, taught us that the evolution of the gut microbes um, in the first three years of life can permanently or long last have a long-lasting impact on your health trajectory on into adulthood. So we know that when the baby's born, the gut is largely sterile. Mm-hmm. There are actually a few bugs, as it turns out, um, that you can take in through the uh, amniotic fluid, but predominantly it's sterile. And the first dose of bugs that go into the gut are um, obtained as the baby comes out through the birth canal. So in a natural delivery, the baby will ingest some of mum's bacteria from her colon uh, over the vagina and then immediately afterwards also from the skin of the mother. And we know that babies who are born by caesarean section, let's say, who don't get to go through the birth canal, their gut microbiota in the first months of life are very, very different to the babies that are born by vaginal delivery. Wow. So um, by about two to three years of age, the gut microbiota becomes pretty stable and much more similar to that of an adult. And what we know is that there are a number of factors that can influence the evolution of the gut microbiota from birth through to three years. The first is, as I mentioned, the mode of delivery, whether they're vaginally delivered or a caesarean section. Um, The second is whether the baby is breastfed or formula-fed in the first instance. And then, of course, um, the weaning diet that the baby's placed onto can influence also. But what's interesting is by about 6 to 12 months of age, the microbiota of the breastfed babies is very similar to that of the formula-fed babies. So whilst they start off quite different during the period when the babies are breastfed or formula-fed, by about 6 months, when they're introduced to foods, that seems to have the most 
uh, significant impact actually on the gut microbiota. And so now more and more studies are showing that um, the diet of the infant, the diversity, it's very good to have a broad range of foods in a baby's diet and also to have home prepared fruits, vegetables and meats rather than processed foods. Now we don't know why. It may be that the bacteria are taken out of processed foods because they have to then be sitting on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may be one thing. But we definitely know that diversity of the diet in, in that early period um, is very important. And then in the longer term, it really comes down to diet. Antibiotics can have an impact, but once you've established your healthy gut microbiota, say, mm-hmm. a single course of antibiotic doesn't really have a long-lasting impact on your gut microbiota. Mm. It gets disrupted, but it automatically comes back again and replenishes to a healthy lawn. It's only if you had repeated long courses of antibiotics that you can actually then destroy the lawn and it may not be able to recover back to its same healthy state. So you're saying that from about three years on, does it still continually change or about from three years on it's fairly, it's it's stable and it's, it's, it's that's going to stay? reasonably you. stable. Yeah. It's actually very difficult to shift and okay. studies have shown that once the stable microbiota is established, um, you can try to change your diet and you'll create a small shift but it won't dramatically disrupt what you have in your gut because what's there already, these trillions of bugs that Katie was talking about, they have a resilience. So they're going to bounce back and they're going to keep bouncing back once they're there. They've established what's called homeostasis, like a balance. I guess it's like a community. Once you've got a community in place, it's very difficult to come (laughs) in and displace it, right? So it's exactly like that. So we don't really know much about um, the development of the microbiome in the first couple of years of life. Um, There is, for instance, a change to the way the babies poop in the first year of life. When they go from being breastfed to having solids, their poo becomes solid as well. Um, But there's an argument that as the uh, uh, stomach starts to develop acidification, so starts to develop an adult pattern of acid being produced in order to digest food, that the microbiome in the gut also matures. And so most people think that you get an adult profile of the microbiome at about two years of age. So those first year or two is quite a plastic time, meaning things can change. And that's why people are looking at uh, cesarean section versus vaginal delivery, because that can alter your microbiome, uh, how long you should be breastfed for, and whether babies should be exposed to antibiotics, because that's the establishment of the microbiome, and getting that right is probably important for lifelong health. Now, is that, is that, and is that linked to intolerances later on in life, and just reactions in general? I don't know if we actually know that, do we? Yeah, intolerances, I'm not sure. What we do know, though, is it's linked to um, healthy immune programming Mm -hmm. and uh, a a sort of suboptimal microbiota. What we, we often refer to as dysbiosis is strongly linked to later immune problems, including the allergy problems we just talked about, autoimmune disease, all of the chronic illnesses that we suffer from in modern society. So metabolic conditions, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, stroke, they're all linked 
back into the gut microbiota because it's so important in setting the immune system and the metabolic system on a healthy path. But then, as Mimi said, there is now this massive, like there's this huge industry that's exploding trying to link whether the microbiome, i.e. the community of bacteria you have in your gut, can be linked to all sorts of diseases of the affluenza period we talk about, so obesity, um, diabetes, stroke, cardiometabolic disease, all those things. And everyone thinks the holy grail is in the intestine. It is quite funny, actually because it's very hard to distinguish which is the best bugs to have down there. It's like being on Mars, looking at the planet and going, hmm, we don't like those blondies, they're pretty bad. I mean, it's so, it's, it's very, very primitive at the moment, but there are lots and lots of studies and lots of lots of companies that are on an arms race to find the perfect profile of bacteria to either prevent or treat a whole lot of conditions. And some of that has been generated by some really intriguing research in the US where um, they took mice and they transplanted faeces from one mice to another and they could change whether that mouse was obese or not. And so it's been used to treat obesity in mice, hasn't translated yet to humans, but there have been um, claims made that it'll be able to affect uh, your risk of cancer, your risk of allergies, your risk of obesity, your risk, risk of autism, all sorts of things. And they are still just claims. There are links, as Mimi said, but I think we have to be very, very discerning and sceptical about how strong this link is because um, we know you can't really change your microbiome too dramatically um, anyway, and we don't have the long-term research from early childhood to late adulthood to be able to distinguish whether one thing is affected or one thing is linked yeah. to the other. I think that's a really important point. So th- what we know is that changes in the gut microbiome are associated with these disorders, but it's very interesting that the direction of change can, either direction can make the same well, can be associated with the same condition. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about eczema, for example. Um, that studies have shown that babies in Scandinavia have um, a shift in certain bugs. They have lower levels of bugs that are found in healthy breastfed babies, and that was associated with a higher risk of having eczema. But studies coming out of Japan and New Zealand found the opposite. Mm. In fact, they, the babies that had a higher level of those and lower levels of the adult type bacteria were the ones who ended up having higher eczema. And to me, what that tells us is we know that the gut is important because we have found these uh, very strong um, relationships in metabolic and immune programming to determine later risk of disease. What we don't know is which bugs are the good ones. And the reason for that, I think, is there's a huge redundancy in the system. What I mean by that is many different bugs can do the same thing. And it's quite likely that a whole range of different patterns can support health. So nobody has worked out, as Katie said, which bugs are actually important. And it's very unlikely it's one critical bug. It's, it's more about the balance of bugs and the functions that they're able to support. So a healthy gut microbiota, generally speaking, is considered to be one with lots of bugs. So it's called richness. Mm-hmm. It's very rich. Diversity. And then diversity is the other element where we want lots of different types of bugs that have many different functions. And so in this way, if you had a very diverse and rich microbiota, you're more likely to be able to withstand insults, to be able to sustain all of the different functions that the microbiota have, and also to um, keep the bad bugs out. 
and then you'll have stronger resilience of your of your gut microbiota. So in one of the questions you were asking was, well, what does that mean for the consumer about how to manage all of these things? Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot of interest by companies and consumers about what helps make you have a good microbiome. And there are many, many claims, and that includes foods that are fermented, um, that have a lot of um, good bugs, so to speak, so that are rich in things like lactobacillus and fermentable milk and things like probiotics in yogurt. Um, And then at the other end of the spectrum, people talk about diversity of fruit and vegetables um, and trying to feed the healthy microbiome by having a rich and varied diet and getting lots of healthy exercise and not smoking. So there are lots of claims, um, not backed up by evidence yet, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, eat lots of fruit and veggies, uh, make sure you have a bit of yogurt, uh, get some exercise to keep your bowel nice and active as well, because we know that that helps its activity um, and um, try and avoid things that are harmful like smoking and probably too much alcohol. And again, your app, Allergy Pal, is an amazing source of information for anyone looking to find out more. But I wanted to ask, what are some of your favourite myths about intolerances? Because they're so common these days. Yeah. I mean, people come in and they do think they're allergic or intolerant to all Everything. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I think the, the one thing that is pretty... Um, pretty big out there, which is not necessarily a myth, um, but um, and people do use it for symptom control, is the FODMAPS diet. And so the FODMAPS diet stands for fructose. Uh, there's a whole lot of different sugars and FODMAPS is a summary of all those different sugars or non-digestible sugars. And so people go on a low FODMAPS diet, which is basically taking dairy, gluten and fermentable sugars out of your diet and there's whole cookbooks on it. That The people who have promulgated that haven't done uh, randomised controlled trials, and which is a real pity because if they really felt it would work, you'd think that they would do that. And they, they are very keen prom- you know, promulgators of that theory. Um, now, from a clinician point of view, I'm always looking for something that can help people feel in control of their lives. So we, we eliminate and re-challenge the foods to see if they feel better on them, making sure we take one food out at a time or not take too many out. And sometimes we'll try a low FODMAPS diet to see if that helps them. It, it doesn't reliably help them in my hands, um, but some people get really caught up on them and they think it really does help. And what my job is, is to make sure that they can have some control of their diet. They're not overdoing it, not being too restrictive. They're trying to be sensible about how they do it. And if they want to do it, then that's fine. It's, you know, low cost. It's not too invasive. And as long as they don't get any micronutrient deficiencies, I'm very supportive of it. Um, But, you know, the problem is there's a whole lots of different diets that come on trend every couple of years. And as allergists, I'm always, you know, trying to be open-minded about it because if if someone believes it's going to help them, let's give it a go because it may well be the new thing that's going to be the world's greatest cure. And I'm always excited by that opportunity. Um, but sometimes it's a bit of a waste of time. So we, we have a, a healthy scepticism because there's a lot of fad diets that come around. But there is no doubt, and you know it yourself, if you take something out of your diet, it makes you feel different. So if you go on a, a dairy-free diet for a week, you do feel different. Or if you you know don't eat much meat for a week, you do feel different. And that's because our intestines are intimately linked with our brain. Um, our intestines actually have grown out of our brain developmentally. And there is many neurons in our intestine as there are neurons in our brain. So we are actually quite quite a quite a wide in, we have a wide intestine. And when we talk about those concepts of oh I feel like crap 
you know, that, that's right, you feel like crap. <laughs> so our intestines are really important from our sense of well-being and our health and that they're functioning well and that they're you know, evacuating well and they're digesting well and they're doing all the things that they should be doing. And a quietly working intestine that gets on with its job makes us a healthy person. But if it's not doing its job, we feel like crap. Yeah, I think that I, I agree with Katie. That's probably the biggest myth um, I'd like to discuss. And that is, you know, you, when you start on the FODMAP diet, let's say, it just eliminates so many different foods and some of which are actually very good for you. So what I, I would like to suggest is if it does seem to improve the symptoms, then try introducing mm. some foods back in so yeah. at least you're not permanently eliminating such a broad range of foods that can be healthy and, and good for your gut bacteria. Because, I mean, I think our focus should be about keeping gut microbiota as healthy as we can. And we know that the single most important factor beyond age three is your diet. So we should at least, because um, most of them are fruits and vegetables, aren't they? Particularly the colourful fruits and vegetables, which we know are actually really good for you. And they remove them from the diet. Yes. Mm. So, so they make you remove things like mushrooms and bananas and I you know, fundamentally feel a little uncomfortable with that. But all the berries as well, yeah, with all their phyto, because yeah. they're full of phytonutrients. And, so, and there used to be one called the salicylate amine diet, which came into fad about 10 years ago. And again, there's no evidence about, about that diet. Um, and it does eliminate all sorts of really healthy things. But it is worth also mentioning that, um, you know, we are what we eat. There's no doubt about that. And that's not only does it affect our microbiome, but also the health of our gut and our immune health. But our gut health is also affected by all sorts of things. It's affected by healthy exercise. And we know that. We know that exercise helps your intestines to have proper peristalsis, which is the movements that move and propel food through your intestine. We know that stress can make your intestine stop working. So uh, meditation can be very helpful for your uh, good functioning intestine. So it's not just about eating, it's about avoiding toxins, which you know, include probably smoking and too much alcohol. Um, it also means avoiding uh, exercising properly and sleeping well, perhaps using meditation. All those sorts of things are quite helpful and calming for the intestine as well. Allergies was presented by Professor Katie Allen and Professor Mimi Tang and was produced by me, Matt Dwyer, with audio production by Darcy Thompson. In our next episode, we talk about the recent rise in food-related allergies. Listener.